This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, some important news for you if you're a transit rider. Starting August the 24th, if you ride TransLink, anything on TransLink, you're going to be required to wear a face covering on the bus, on the train, on the C-Bus. TransLink CEO uh, Kevin Desmond had a chance to speak with our Linda Steele yesterday after the announcement was made, and he explained why it was they waited until now. When we started our safe operating plan at the beginning of June, um, at the same time as the BC initial BC restart, and then we followed that with our Wearing is Caring campaign. We were also following um, really what Dr. Henry was saying and what public health officials were saying at that time. Um, we, we weren't really talking about mandatory masks. Walmart, other businesses weren't talking about mandatory masks at that point in time. And we're a transit agency. We're not a public health organization. So then and today, we continue to follow the lead of Dr. Henry over the last number of days. Uh, Dr. Henry's been uh, talking a lot more about, hey, we need to start um, making masks um, uh, much more prevalent on, on public transit. Um, we, we uh, Through our Wearing is Caring campaign, we got it up to 40% or so of our riders wearing a mask. But clearly, we need to do better than that. And what we've seen with our uh, sister agencies throughout Canada, Toronto, Montreal, where 90, 95% of people were wearing masks. And that was in, in large part, we believe, because it was mandated. It was required uh, in those cities by, by authorities. So uh, I think over these last number of days, in, in close consultation with the province, as well as with our colleagues at BC Transit, now is the right time to do it. All right, so that's Kevin Desmond, the CEO of TransLink. He was on NW yesterday after they announced the face coverings that will be mandatory trains, buses, and sea buses starting August the 24th. Now, he also addressed concerns that transit vehicles are a risky environment when it comes to transmission because of the close quarters. To date, there are no proven cases of community transmission of COVID on transit vehicles anywhere. Uh, in the world, and that includes, you know, in Asia, in Tokyo, in, in China, where they're where they're back to um, fairly close to normal, um, very very crowded um, public transportation. People are wearing masks. People are not talking much. Uh, they're cleaning their systems uh, more frequently, and you know, at least knock on wood, to date, there's not been community transmission. So, yeah, fresh air can be important. Uh, you can open the windows, uh, but but our, our uh, your listeners should also know that we've got good. Um, air filtration systems in our rolling stock. Okay, but the big question here as well is, how is this going to be enforced, right? I mean, are they going to be telling people, you got to get off the train, what's going to happen? Well, Jody Vance spoke with the head of the union representing uh, some members of TransLink staff, that's Gavin McGarrickle, about what's going to happen. Our position has always been consistent, 
that, you know, we have a lot of faith in the public health officer and, you know, we want our members to be safe. We want the riders to be safe, but we also, you know, want them to be paying close attention to security because you're right, the optics, uh, you know, people might want to take it out on the drivers. And we've certainly seen some negative reactions in other jurisdictions. So uh, we've been clear that our members are there to focus on driving the bus safely and uh, that transit security, police, et cetera, uh, if there's any issues, they need to be uh, really vigilant on that. So that's our main concern. Uh, but we also want to make sure that, uh, you know, if we can get a higher percentage of people uh, on transit wearing masks, that's that's a good thing. And uh, hopefully that will keep uh, everyone safer. Okay, so there you go. There, it's an education program is what they're going to do. They're going to ask people to please put a mask on. Uh, there's, you know, as for finding people, they're not at that stage. Uh, right now what they're saying is if you want to get on transit, for everybody's sake, please wear a mask starting August the 24th. It is now mandatory on the, the transit system starting on that date. And that's going to be a big change, I think, for some people. A lot of people are already doing it, but for some people it might be a big change. Although at this point, I mean, how much of a big change can it be? A lot of stores that you go into, people are wearing masks. And in fact, if you're a Walmart shopper, uh, this is interesting as well. Walmart Canada is actually making masks mandatory in all stores in this country. That's actually coming up in just five days. They're doing that on August the 12th. So for Walmart shoppers, that's going to be a big deal. If you're a Costco shopper, and I'm a Costco shopper, you know already that they have quite a a, a very strict policy on wearing masks and sanitizing buggies and all that. In fact, when you walk into a Costco, they've got somebody right there. And if you don't have a mask on, they're going to hand you one. Uh, And there's a person there who does that. And then there's a person there who's also like wiping down the buggies. They've got hand sanitizer at the end of every aisle. They've got, you know, wipes, you name it. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to people that some of these big stores have decided, like, listen, if we want people to feel safe, to keep coming here, to keep shopping, then you're going to have to show people that you're kind of investing in that public safety. Walmart Canada moving forward with making masks mandatory in all stores starting August the 12th. That's going to be a big one. And the reason why? Well, it's because of the numbers. Uh, We are seeing more cases. We are at the between 40 and 50 mark pretty much consistently now. That's a lot. Not as many people in hospital, which is good. Uh, We haven't had uh, no deaths were reported uh, in the last report that we had yesterday. Also good. But that doesn't kind of get away from the fact that we are seeing more cases out there, which again is a concern. And we don't want to reach that tipping point where all of a sudden you don't know where those cases are coming from. And that's what Dr. Bonnie Henry has been warning about all along, right? If you have a case and you can, you know where it's coming from and you can identify it, track it down, uh, get people to self-isolate, that's fine. You're at a, you're at a manageable point. But when you start getting cases where you don't know where they're coming from and you can't contact everybody, then you're in trouble. And so we're kind of perilously, you know, edging close to that, which is the big concern for health officials and for the government. And we know now about 1,500 people are in self-isolation around the province. That's up from 1,000 that we heard about a week or so ago. So still wait, trying to get a hold of this. And people are going to have to start taking that mask thing very seriously, not just on TransLink, but in stores like Walmart and more. This is Mornings with Simi.
You know, we've been talking a lot about the resurgence in cases of COVID-19 that we have seen here in BC. The numbers have inched up. We we go between 40 to 50 new cases a day. And just like we've seen in many other jurisdictions, it is a younger number of cases that we're seeing here. So people who are younger are getting it, not ending up in hospital as much. And fortunately, we haven't seen any deaths in the last few days. Those are Those are the good aspects of it. Bad aspect, of course, is how the number of cases uh, still remains kind of stubbornly high. Now, that's because Canada, along with many other countries around the world, are trying to move forward with reopening the economy trying to return to some semblance of normal while balancing those health concerns. We wanted to check in and find out how Denmark has been doing. They have been an international leader in their approach to the pandemic, but yesterday in Denmark as well, they announced their highest single-day increase since the month of May. Former CKNW reporter Shane Woodford joins us now to talk more about that. He is a freelancer in Denmark. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Sam. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So tell me about these numbers. What's going on in Denmark? Yeah, numbers are going up. Uh, We've got an outbreak in Aarhus, which is Denmark's second largest city. Uh, They're not entirely sure where the outbreak is coming from, which is concerning. Uh, But Aarhus, over the last couple of weeks, went from a handful of cases here, you know, a couple there, uh, week to week. In the space of just over a week, they've added 200 cases. So over half of the increase uh, day-to-day has been in the city of Aarhus. Another big factor has been an outbreak in a slaughterhouse here in Denmark, almost close to 100 cases there. And I suspect that there's going to be, although I haven't seen any evidence of it yet, but just from being here and seeing uh, what's happened in July, I suspect that there'll be some transmission that will have been brought in from elsewhere because tourism uh, is a little cramped here in Europe. The school year ends about mid to late June, and then your summer holiday season is essentially July. And uh, staycationing Denmark uh, really lit up here in Mm -hmm. Fulbor. They saw, to me, they saw, uh, I think it was about four or 5,000 more tourists uh, this summer in July than they saw last year to give you a sense of how people came out of the woodwork with the sun out to try and uh, travel here. And of course, we've opened up our borders. So there were some Germans and some Norwegians, etc. And I, I suspect that there may have been some cases flying around from that as well. So what is what are things like in Denmark then? You mentioned tourism. How open is it? It feels really open. Matter of fact, it feels um, worryingly open. Um, we were you know, walking down the what's called the Goga, that's like a pedestrian shopping street uh, here in, in Fobor last week. We were in Copenhagen the week before that. And yeah, there's visible signs, you know, that you, you have to write your hands down with rubbing alcohol everywhere you go. Uh, people are cognizant to try and keep their distance. But still, I mean, the crush of people in Fobor and even some places in Copenhagen, uh, you just felt like some of that social distancing was really kind of going out the window, which made me concerned. And now we're seeing, as you referenced off the top, uh, today was 136 new infection cases. It was over 100 yesterday, over 100 the day before that. Three days in a row. We haven't seen those numbers since May the 8th. Uh, and so that is concerning. Everybody I talk to here says that they're a little worried about it. And this was Simi when they were supposed to announce uh, a phase four reopening now, which is getting a bit of a rethink. And we'll find out more about that next week. It, that's so interesting then, Shane, because it's almost it's so similar to what we have happened here right? Kind yeah. of stuck in in stage three, not yet ready to move to stage four, because yeah, the numbers did creep up. Is that what's happening all over Europe at this point? It's different from place to place. Um, different places are, are much more severe. I know that Romania is going through a second wave that is exponentially more severe than its first. 
yesterday, Poland um, had the most number of cases to date yet in the pandemic. France is seeing a steady climbing of cases. Uh, Germany is over a thousand cases for two days in a row. Uh, that hasn't happened in at least a month or so. Um, the UK, as you know, has pumped its brakes on its reopening mm-hmm. because of the number of cases there. So we're starting to see, and even not just in Denmark, to me, but Norway and Finland, uh, the cases are creeping up, and those are easy to spot because their numbers were just rock bottom. I mean, they were almost down to zero in every category. And now they're back up to like 20 and 30 cases a day this week, which is really unusual for those countries. Sweden's a bit of a different case. It's, it's kind of a reverse psychology there because their outbreak was so harsh and it's just now coming down that there seems to be a sense of relief at 300 cases there, even though that's triple what Denmark is putting in day to day where there's growing concern. Right. Are the cases, the, the people who are getting COVID now, Shane, are they younger? Because that's what we have seen in North America. That's what we've seen here in B.C., that is a trend. We're seeing yeah. it increasing among the younger generation because they tend to be, um, by and large, the group that goes out and isn't so governed by, for example, nightclubs here in Denmark are closed. So um, people can't go out and you know party the night away. Right. But, but the younger set can, right? They can go and, and into their party spots and have house parties and things like that. They tend to be a little less aware or maybe disdainful of the regulations. So you're seeing some growth there for sure. But I still think that Tourism is a big one, uh, especially mm-hmm. here where they've, you know, it's it's just been in Sydney the last month that this experiment about opening borders has begun to play out. So it was really small opening, a couple of countries, and now we've really opened up to most of the EU, uh, barring some exceptions as, as different infections increase in countries and the Danish government says, okay, these people over here are no longer allowed in, etc. Right. All right. We're going to have to check back in with you then, see how it goes. Shane, thank you. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Stay safe. You too. That is Shane Woodford. He's a freelancer in Denmark and, of course, former CKNW reporter, filling us in on how things are going there, just like what we have seen happen here in BC, where they were at that third stage of getting things reopened, and then the numbers started to climb back up, also seeing more cases in younger people, same thing that we're seeing here, but again, kind of stalled in that stage three point as the numbers creep back up and uh, trying to get a hold of things at that point. The thing is, and health officials have said this as well, we knew the numbers were going to go up as we hit stage three, right? There, It's a point of finding that balance where the numbers don't exponentially start to increase, but where they can still keep control of what's happening, contact trace, get people to self-isolate. And so it's it's imperative to keep the number at that level, uh, that, that lower level as much as possible uh, so that we can stay open and not have to think about going back. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we keep getting told to avoid these huge gatherings. They're not good. We shouldn't be doing them. And then we hear about this huge and very popular event that is happening just across the border. To talk more about that, we're joined by Nikki Reitmeyer this morning. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Have you heard of Sturges before? Oh, yeah. Of course. Right. Yeah. It's this huge annual event. This is actually the 80th annual motorcycle rally in Sturges, which is really just the small community of 7,000 people in South Dakota. But every year, thousands, and I mean thousands of motorcycles roll up to this small town for a massive, massive rally. It's a week of partying and drinking and having a good time. And there's bands that play big bands too. I think Aerosmith was even there one year. They attract some years 
500,000 people. I mean, this thing, it's supposed to be quite the party. And any other year, it would be a great time, I'm sure. Except for this year, for obvious reasons. But is it going ahead still? Yes, it absolutely is. Uh, and now officials are worried that this could be a super spreader event. Oh, I'm just speechless at this one. Like, it's, you know, takes place in South Dakota. It's a big, as you put it, huge event. People plan to go. I know people who have gone in years past. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. They've had a great time. But this is, yeah, this is not the year to do it. What is the reasoning behind this? Why are they going ahead with this? I think just because they know they can't stop people from coming. I don't think that excuses the fact that they're essentially doing very little to protect people while they're there. But the mayor of Sturgis was on CNN and he said, look, we, we simply can't stop people coming even if we wanted to. It's been apparent that what the city of Sturgis can do, we, we cannot stop people from coming. Uh, South Dakota has been a free state through this whole process and we've had tremendous amount of visitors already. All that being said, being prepared is what we put as a priority for everybody, both for the community and for our visitors. We prepare for rallies every year, but this one takes a little bit more. And we we, we want to stress personal responsibility to our visitors and our residents as this uh, gathering moves forward. There are some states and some cities that have quarantine restrictions in place. Um, What measures are you taking for the bikers coming from Hotspots in Texas, in California, in Arizona, in Florida. Any quarantine restrictions for those bikers? No, no restrictions in place uh, from the state or from the city of Sturgis. Are they crazy? I mean, you're talking, the estimates I've seen are 250,000 people over a period of 10 days. This sounds like craziness. Yeah. And the follow-up question in that interview was, okay, well, is it mandatory then that people wear masks? And they went, And the mayor said, no, also not mandatory. So, you know, they don't seem to have a lot of measures in place other than just saying, we hope that people do what they feel is right. We hope that people wear a mask. Oh, because that's gone so well for them so far. Yeah, well, exactly right. I mean, it's crazy to say, you know, we we hope that 250,000 people coming from all across the country flocking to our small community wear masks, but we're certainly not doing anything to to ensure that they are wearing those masks after all. So, I mean, this could be this could be chaos. And I think the demographic of you know, people coming to uh, to this event, you might have people more inclined to not wear masks saying, ah, you know, I, I think that's, you know, it's it's stupid anyways. I'm, I don't believe in wearing the masks. So I think that this could be, uh, you know, fingers crossed that, that it's certainly not. But when you have people coming from states that do have bad infection rates, mingling with a bunch of other people for, you know, five, 10 days, and then everyone going back home to their respective states again. This isn't just a problem for South Dakota, where, you know, all things relative cases haven't been too bad compared to the rest of the United States. There are around 9,270 cases, 141 deaths, but it's about spreading back to the other states again when everybody goes back home. You know, Nikki, I just finished reading a book about the 1918 flu pandemic and uh, how devastating it was. And the second wave in particular, which was much deadlier than the first wave. And mm-hmm. I, was, I was reading a story about a city of the Philadelphia, and you probably heard the story because I think a lot of people wrote about it in the last little while, about how they held a parade. And they held a parade and health no. officials told them, 
don't hold this parade, but it was like a victory parade post-World War One, um, and it was to raise money like for the war effort, you know, to pay off the debts and things. And they were told, the health officials were telling the city, don't do this, don't do this. And the city said, no, it's going to be fine if people, you know, and exactly like what this gentleman was just saying there, people will be responsible, it'll be fine, they'll, you know, we know, and it'll be good, and everything will be fine. People will take precautions. Yeah. Uh, no, that didn't happen. They held the parade, and the death rate in Philadelphia was devastating, so much higher than other cities, which actually went ahead and canceled their parades and get-togethers. I just feel like it's history repeating itself sometimes. Yeah, it really, really seems to be, doesn't it? I mean, you just watch these things happen over and over and over again in history, and you go, okay, when are we going to learn our lesson yeah. here? So another big rally going ahead. And I know there's people who are going to be saying, you know, what about the protests? What about the protests? I mean, there's obviously a, a difference between people uh, gathering for a, a protest as opposed to gathering for a party. I mean, those the mentality is two certainly different things. One, uh, arguably, you know, necessary if you're moving forward human rights. The other, a party. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, any large gathering is certainly not going to be good for the spread of this virus, period. Yeah. However, this one seems so much more avoidable, being that it is an event that right. they could cancel. But as the mayor said, I mean, look, people might just show up anyways, and then, you know, what can we do? Oh, really? Then what's the point of being the mayor? Well, that's right? true. <laughs> if you're just going to throw up your hands every time there's a tough thing to do, I guess why be the mayor? Why have a mayor at that point? Yeah, sixty uh, percent of the residents said we want this thing to be canceled or postponed. Yeah, exactly. All right, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Sammy. Have a great weekend. You too. Oh, that just seems like craziness, doesn't it? That Sturgis is going ahead with a quarter of a million people. This is mornings with Simi. A lot of debate going on right now about our back-to-school plan here in B.C. We know the B.C. Teachers Federation has called on the government to delay the return to class until more consultation can happen. But we're looking at a more flexible approach. At least that's the ask from B.C. principals and vice principals and their association. To talk more about that, we're joined now by Darren Daniluk, who is the president of the B.C. Principals and Vice Principals Association. Darren, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you very much for having me, sir. So what is your thinking on this then? What is the approach that you would like to see taken? As the statement that we made, uh, as you mentioned, spoke to flexibility, and that sort of wraps up the approach we're looking for. Uh, as, you, as you know, the DCGF is asking for a delay, and that's not necessarily what our statement speaks to. It speaks to having an open mind and a flexible approach to how this could roll out. Uh, at the core of what we see necessary is time in the schools for our school leaders, the principals and vice principals, to work with school staff, teachers, support staff, in advance of teachers, uh, sorry, in advance of students arriving on site. So the flexibility we're looking for is that time, and how can that time be found? Right, so like uh, principals and vice principals will have a lot of work to do in their schools. Mm -hmm. Are they getting that information from school districts yet? Uh, Yes, of course, the principals and vice principals among the other um, sector partners, we've been around the table with the ministers since the beginning of the summer, the working groups and then the steering committee. So we've been part of the consultations and the development of the plan as it is. And uh, they, principals that is, they've, they've just now been, many of them have been called back to, um, back to the, the working tables within their districts uh, to start the more minute and, and finite planning, sorry, mm-hmm. Finer, finer planning uh, of the details. The, the plan the minister spelled out last week is pretty broad strokes and all the details yeah. 
those will follow the principles and vice principles to start putting together with your district staff. So when you say a more flexible approach, what would that mean? What mm-hmm. does that look like? Well, the flex we're looking for is, again, the September 8th date is still the target, but uh, thinking around that is less rigid and more flexible to, to find that time that we're seeking. Uh, that is what we're speaking to. Now, perhaps as the BTF had say, said, uh, you know, a delayed start obviously would find that time, but that's not necessarily where it has to happen. So if we have some flexible thinking around that, and that may have to be um, you know, unique in each of the districts that we have, but if the time could be found in advance of the eight, it's just, it's just critical that the school leaders have time in their settings to develop and collaborate with our staff, our teachers and our support staff, in order to sort of meet the, uh, the design of the, the broad strokes with the finer details. So do you think that, that some schools might be ready? Perhaps other larger schools might need a little more time? Well, I think that goes without saying. A larger, more complex school, you know, obviously they're going to need a bit more time to put together the plans. And uh, that's why I spoke, you know, even flexible. It may not be the same in any of our school districts in terms of the need for this uh, time on the ground, so to speak. Right. With, uh, teaching staff and, and support staff and principals. Right. So different districts, I would imagine, like, is there more information coming from certain districts? Like are other mm-hmm. districts like keeping up to date? Is everybody good? Uh, well, there's more information coming uh, every week. I mean, the, the uh, working groups and the, the steering committee are continuing to meet. And uh, we anticipate another update, or I do rather, uh, next week to hear what's happening. But um, yeah, the, I mean, the work is ongoing and it's continuous and uh well, we're just going to have yeah. to keep at it. What are the biggest concerns then, Darren? Like, is it the space in the schools? Is it, you know, individual p- principals? Are they concerned about, like, not kids not wearing masks, uh, the hand washing? Like, are there particular things, do you think, that really stand out right now that principals need help with? Um, well, I mean, there are many particular things. They kind of all wrap up into the, that sense and assurance of safety and that uh, parents can and teachers and, and support staff can all uh, safely return to the setting, and, and our own persons, our own principals and vice principals can return safely, and that's sort of fundamental and, and central to everything. The most, uh, I think the most demanding thing right now, perhaps, is the concept of the cohorts and how to make that, how to roll that out, how to apply that. That was a new, a new feature that was introduced last week, and we haven't had a lot of time to, to get our heads around it. And that's probably the most uh, pressing thing at the moment. Uh, and obviously, again, for more large and more complex schools, the idea of cohorts and how to apply that and, and have students uh, staggered and moving in different cohorts around the building. Right. In fact, the students are moving. So that's probably the one that's the most uh, pressing right now. I would imagine that there's a lot of principals calling each other and talking to this and figuring out what the good way to approach how to approach yeah. us. Very much. And I think the working groups the ministers established, uh, you know, an expedite approach to it. And then we have our, our principals, our members of those groups. Uh, there is consideration now for expanding that uh, the, the, the number of working groups, right. one perhaps in particular, two timetable design and application of cohort models. So well, the, work, the work continues. All right. Well, we'll be checking back in with you, Darren. Thanks for your time. My very my pleasure. Talk to you again. That's Darren Danilak, who's the president of the BC Principals and Vice Principals Association. They're looking for some flexibility on the date for school to start. If you want to weigh in as a parent, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We know that everyone is in a very unique position when it comes to deciding what is best for them and their family during this pandemic. And a lot of parents, as we have been talking about and as we've been hearing, are understandably really concerned about sending their children back to school. And I keep hearing that phrase, but what are the options? What can we do? Well, I know there's a lot of people out there who homeschool their kids who are saying, well, you could try homeschooling. We wanted to find out more about that. Is there an increased interest in doing this? Well, Melanie Wilkins Ho is with us now, president of the BC Home Educators Association. Melanie, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Have you been getting, would you say, more of an interest in homeschooling with everything that's going on? Definitely. Uh, the inbox for our particular website has seen a doubling uh, of the messages in the last month or so. Uh, but in particular, where we've seen a, a flood of inquiries is on the Facebook group site. So also co-administer a province-wide Facebook group. And uh, it's just been a tidal wave of people wanting to, uh, to subscribe to the groups and get more information. Is that because do you think people are concerned about, you know, putting kids back in actual school buildings? Oh, for sure. That's definitely been expressed in the Facebook groups. Um, and understandably, people do have concerns. Um, and so people are looking to find out what can they do as an alternative. <clears throat> Pardon me. Right. So before all of this happened, Melanie, how many parents would you say, uh, how many families are homeschooling in the province? Uh, well, I do have the most recent numbers from this past year, and um, I, I wanted to just point out that when we talk about homeschooling in BC, we have two actual paths to do that. Uh, one path, which a lot of people, I think, are thinking of when they talk about homeschooling, is actually enrollment in a distributed learning program that is overseen by the Ministry of Education, and that's really still part of the school system. It's just a home-based delivery of the BC curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, and that option uh, usually has, I think in the, the most recent years, between twenty and 25,000 full-time uh, students using that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the other option, which is actually what the BC Home Educators Association focuses on, is registered homeschooling. And that's a, a lot smaller number of uh, students historically. Um, and that option means that the parents have assumed 100% responsibility for their child's educational program. And that gives them the autonomy to design what they think works best. Mm-hmm. So for for those numbers, um, in the past year, there were 2,455 uh, children registered as homeschoolers right. across BC. So we're talking uh, less than half of 1% of the student population for registered homeschooling so far. Right, but it sounds like you do expect that number to go up this year. I imagine that it will. Um, in terms of registered homeschooling, it's an option that's always available to parents. It's been part of the legislation since 1989. And it can be something used either short or long term. Um, And one of the advantages has always been that for families that need it or want it, uh, students can return into the school system and are generally placed with their age mates, certainly for kindergarten to grade seven. That's the case. Okay, so that's interesting. So they can, if they choose that home BC curriculum option, then whenever they decide that, okay, now my child can go back to school, the child can just kind of pick up where everybody else is. 
Yes, and the thing about registered homeschooling is you, you're not obliged to follow the BC curriculum if you find a different model that works better for your child. Um, it can give you an awful lot of freedom to tailor a program that maybe helps your child more than if it, you know, if it wasn't a good fit in the school system. But the BC curriculum is always available online as a reference guide. And um, yes, students generally can jump right back in and there's not a lot of disruption. Uh, the one caveat that I think a lot of people are concerned about, though, is that um, there's always a proviso that the school you're looking at has to have room for you. So you may have given up a spot um, in a choice school right. or your catchment school. So the district would have to find somewhere else to place you uh, if your school doesn't have room when you want to return. Right. So you're thinking then, Melanie, that perhaps a lot of people are thinking of this temporarily. I think that's been a sentiment for sure in the Facebook groups. But there's been a lot of people also saying, you know, I was kind of thinking about this for a while and this has just sort of nudged me more in that direction. So I think there's both both attitudes so uh, when you hear all the concern then about the back-to-school plan, do you feel like, hey, there are options out there? Well, uh, there's always been those options, um, and every family has to weigh a lot of different factors and, and decide what's best for them. But, yes, this is definitely always an option at any time during a school year for whatever reason. Uh, you can switch to registered homeschooling. And it's worth noting that any public school in the province does have an obligation to switch your child's status to registered homeschooling if you request it. Right. I guess perhaps people are a little concerned, though, about how time-consuming that is for them, too, because a lot of these parents want to put their kids in school so they can go back to work. Oh, for sure. And you have to weigh what works for your own family. Uh, what people need to keep in mind, though, is what we saw in the spring with crisis schooling <clears throat> is a good descriptor of it. That's not really representative of what homeschooling um, can and should be. There's well-established ways of approaching it that don't involve a whole system that was thrown into chaos, really, on a short term, and trying to figure out how to do that and shift to remote learning. Right. Homeschooling can look like just about anything you want it to that works for your family. I was wondering about that. Like, can you do groups? Like, if you get a couple people together, do, do, do you know people who are doing that? Oh, definitely. There are many groups around the province that meet uh, formally and informally for both academic study and community activities and events. There's lots of programs that go on in the communities that you can attend during school hours that are designed for homeschoolers. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to just be sitting at home right. and pretending to be a teacher. Is, is there somebody that you think that this wouldn't work for, Melanie? Like, have any concerns that you should think that people should think about before they make this decision? Well, it can mean adjustments to, you know, your work schedule, for example, um, possibly your finances, because when you do assume responsibility, it includes the costs. Uh, now, that can be done on low budget and for free in many ways. Um, sometimes your living space might need adapting. Um, so you need to think about whether friends and family can help you out. Uh, but there are lots of also community support groups that you can connect with and find support. Homeschooling has been around for decades and it's well-established with lots of uh, resources out there. So I, I would think that, yeah, work schedule is probably a big one mm -hmm. for people to try and balance. Um, but th we've got families of all stripes that have made it work. Okay. Is there a place people can go to for more information? Yeah, I recommend that families, uh, parents get as much information as they can about their options so they can make an informed decision. And our website, the uh, bchea.ca, is a great place to start. All right, Melanie, thank you. 
Thank you very much. That's Melanie Wilkins Ho, president of the BC Home Educators Association. They have seen interest in homeschooling pretty much double in the last little while as parents kind of have to make that decision about where are we going back to school? What are we going to do? And she talked about the different ways in which people can do that from home. And, and the easiest being, you know what, just follow along with the BC curriculum. It's easy to do online. Government helps you out with that. The school uh, can also help you out with that. And she said there's a lot of interest in that option. Now, is that something that your family would consider as a result of concerns about going back to school? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So still ahead for us on the show this morning, we're going to talk about Canada's vaccine supply. Is there or will there be enough for everybody? This week, we know that uh, that Canada signed two agreements, actually, for two vaccines that are in development with the hopes of making sure that we can procure them for our population. But will that be enough? We're going to talk about that. Also, a little bit later, we'll talk about the July Labor Force Survey. That is the statistics on who went back to work in the month of July. Uh, Not bad for Canada overall, not bad for BC either, but still a long way to go. So we'll be breaking all of that down for you this morning. But of course, we have to once again, as we head into a weekend, remind people you don't want to be going to the big parties because big parties is what is getting us into trouble with our number of COVID-19 cases. So over the last weekend, we had 146 new cases and that was over several days, but we're averaging around 40 new cases every day. Think back to June and July. We were in the single digits and talking about new cases. And it was like day after day after day. And it's almost like now that seems to have lulled us into thinking everything was perfectly fine. But increasingly, if you follow along with Dr. Bonnie Henry's press conferences, then you know, and you can hear it and you can tell when you hear her speak that she is concerned about the way things are going and would very much prefer it if people really sat up, paid attention and behaved more carefully. Here's what she said yesterday when she was asked about the trend in the numbers. Obviously, I would like them to be lower. And uh, what we're doing is addressing the specific environments where we have seen transmission events happening. Um, and, you know, as we mentioned earlier, uh, the, the, the things that I'm worried about are cases that are appearing out of nowhere that aren't linked or connected. And so far, those have been very, very low. Um, we're able to find people rapidly. We're able to connect people and connect the dots. What is concerning to me and where, why we need to really focus on this um, concerning piece of people having larger private parties or going to multiple different smaller parties where they're with a numbers of different people that we're starting to see spill over into more concerning environments like people who work in uh, long-term care homes or people who work in um, some of the essential services where there's other people that they come in contact with, uh, people who work in corrections uh, for example. So we need to be careful that if we're a healthcare worker and we're going out to parties, um, we need to keep our bubbles small. This is not the time to start expanding widely for those types of of community contacts. So that's where we're seeing some of this transmission happening where people are going to parties in enclosed environments and they're spending time with people um, for prolonged periods of time, talking, laughing, singing, sharing drinks and other things. Um, And that's where transmission is happening right now. All right, that's Dr. Bonnie Henry. I always go back to that comment that I think it was British police 
had said this when they first started to see problems uh, in in the UK, where they said drunk people cannot socially distance. And I thought that is so true. That kind of sums up where we are here in BC. We most of the problems that we've seen, whether it's Kelowna, Vancouver Coastal Health, now parts of Fraser Health, uh, is because of people um, having a good time and partying, and just in too close quarters, not paying attention. Like yes, we have the outbreaks at the places like the Blueberry Processing Facility and the long-term care homes, those they can kind of jump on top of and figure that out. It's these parties that are the problem, and that's where the potential for things to get away from them actually comes from. So please don't do it. Please, you know, make sure that we can get these numbers back down into a more manageable level. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of the companies looking at phase three clinical trials are really hoping that they'll get some results uh, by the end of this year. Some of them are very ambitious. Some of them are saying, well, maybe the beginning of next year. But that still doesn't mean that we have vaccines for everyone. Um, it's likely that there won't be enough vaccines for the population as, um, as the vaccine uh, rolls out. That is Canada's Chief Medical Health Officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, earlier this week. And that's when they were announcing those procurement agreements for two vaccines with two companies that are in development. Still begs the question, though, how many vaccines will there be to go around? And has Canada actually secured enough for everyone? We're going to talk more about this now with the help of our next guest. That is Amir Ataran, who's a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa. Amir, thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. When you heard about these procurement efforts by the Canadian government, did you think that that was going to be enough for Canada? Oh, it's definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, Canada has come to this game extraordinarily late. We are actually the very last country in North America and the Union combined to reach an agreement that would supply us some vaccine. Um, And that's an unfortunate reality, but the Americans and the Europeans some time ago made agreements with companies that are working on very promising vaccines that they have um, reason to believe will be approved quite soon. Mm -hmm. And the Americans and Europeans made agreements with money on the table that they would have priority to receive some of those vaccines, meaning they put themselves at the front of the queue. By coming in now, we are not near the front. And indeed, some of the vaccines that uh, Americans and Europeans have, have locked up, there simply isn't enough supply left for us. Why did we take, why did it take so long then for us to do this? I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, this is a question that the government hasn't addressed. Now, what the government has done, belatedly, as we've just gone over, is they've made agreements with two companies, Pfizer and Moderna, both of whom have quite promising vaccines now in the third and final phase of clinical trials. If those vaccines work, perhaps we have a deal to receive them now. If they work is an interesting question because both of them are based on a very new technology which has never been used to make a human vaccine before. Mm -hmm. It's a promising technology, 
But because they are based on something new rather than what's been tried and true in the past, the risk is a bit higher there of uh, perhaps the clinical trial not succeeding. Right. And then, of course, you have the question of, do we really have these vaccines locked in? Because it's not been said by the government. They've been very secretive about how many doses they've arranged to receive, if indeed they have arranged a firm deal or whether this is just an option to buy later. They won't clarify that point, and it's disappointing. Hmm, none of this has seemed to have come up before now. Uh, you said we don't even know for sure if these vaccines are going to work. Where does that put Canada then in, in the search for kind of getting things back to normal here? Well, everybody in the world is facing the problem of will the vaccines work? Personally, I think they will. My training, my PhD is in immunology, and I'm looking at some of the trials being published now, and I am just so happy to see the results. So I, I am optimistic to think that one, two, if we're lucky, three vaccines will pretty soon be shown to work. But the question of supply is a different question than scientifically does it work. And on the supply question, regrettably, our government has been late to making deals. And the two deals they've now made with Moderna and Pfizer, they've told us so little about the details, so much less than European governments have or the United States government has that you have to wonder how much is really there. Interesting. So you talked about reading through all the different progress that is being made. Is there a possibility, though, that there's going to be more than two successful vaccines? Like, what is this whole field like right now? It's, it's like nothing we've ever seen. I mean, normally, vaccines take several years, often over a decade from the time that they go into clinical development to, to the time they're approved. I think we're going to achieve that in one year or less and for more than one vaccine. That's how optimistic I am. And this is not being done by cutting corners on the clinical trials for safety. Absolutely not. These clinical trials are as thorough mm -hmm. as any uh, that I've seen in the past, even more thorough. Instead, what's happened is the speed of doing science has just exploded. And there are so many research teams with scientists in pretty well every time zone around the world, people who've forgotten what a weekend means as they've tried to chisel away at this. It's just breathtaking. Now, I know that the Canadian government was doing what they could to support Canadian pharmaceutical companies. Why didn't they make that effort at that time and say, we're going to give you this money. At the same time, we want you to know that we think Canada should be a priority. Well, I have to differ with you there. I, I actually have no interest whatsoever in propping up Canadian vaccine companies. I do not think that an exercise of, of wrapping a vaccine the Canadian flag is our priority. I think the appropriate priority is to get a vaccine that protects people and saves their lives no matter where it comes from. Uh, if it came from the dark side of the moon, I wouldn't care as long as we have confidence in it scientifically and we have the ability 
to count on some supply of it. This is not a time to get all nationalistic. But that's what other countries have been doing. The U.S. did that. No. I mean, the no, pre- the U.S. didn't do that. The president the US, tried the to do that. Made, well, the president is not the U.S. The, the U.S. arranged its first vaccine purchase with AstraZeneca, which is a British company. And the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was invented at Oxford University, is probably going to be the first one that is approved to be used. So that was a very wise move. I think everyone knows what Donald Trump does is, well, for the most part, lunacy. And and it's not really representative of all the efforts that the United States is making. Right. But on the same time, then you're saying, why didn't we get in on that Oxford vaccine? I don't know. I I wish we had. And I I find that disappointing and puzzling. And, you know, there may be... uh, scope for manufacturing that vaccine in Canada under license. Um, That is something that that Oxford and AstraZeneca have been remarkably ethical about. Uh, So we do have an option there that I hope can be explored. Um, There are, of course, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. God willing, they'll work. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other vaccines from other companies. Johnson and Johnson is working on one with researchers at Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital in Boston. Um, a Chinese firm known as Sinovac is working on one that to me looks extremely promising because it's based on a very low tech approach that's worked for a century in other diseases. So, you know, any or all of these from the low tech Sinovac version to the ultra high tech Pfizer version and things in between. All of these are promising approaches. But of course, Simi, it's best to have several eggs in our basket. And and that is something that unfortunately Canada has come late to. It will be more difficult to build it up now. Right. And we simply have to hope that it gets done. Well, Amir, thank you for the discussion. That was fascinating. I learned a lot. Thanks so much, Sammy. Have a good day. You too. That's Amir Adaran, who's a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa, talking about Canada's vaccine situation. He says there is simply not enough, and the government waited too long to make this a priority. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's dive a little deeper into the jobs numbers that came out this morning. StatsCan published the results of the July Labour Force Survey, and we wanted to break it down with the help of Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President at the Business Council of BC. Ken, thanks for being here. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Simi. Okay, let's break down these numbers. What did you think? Uh, overall, it's good. It's, it's sort of in the lines with what I was expecting. Um, just so listeners know, BC gained 70,000 jobs. Uh, that, that's a good number, but it's a slowdown from the previous month when the reopening was in, in more kind of early stages. Uh, the previous month, we saw almost 120,000 uh, regain in employment. So it's a slowdown from the previous month. But like I said, good news because the, the, the trend of rehiring continued but we still are, are in a big hole, um, you know, and it's, it, it's interesting. We're in a world 
where an increase of 70,000 jobs is described as a slowdown from the previous month, yeah. simply because that hole is so deep. Yeah, exactly. Any other month, that would be an amazing number. Yeah. Are, are we talking part-time jobs, full-time jobs, any specific industries? Yeah, that's a good question. We, we are talking mostly part-time jobs, and this uh, is so the most recent data uh, of the 70,000 jobs 50,000 were in the part-time category. And, and this is a pattern that we saw the previous month as well. The vast majority of jobs the previous months, that rehiring process, were in the part-time category. And so as I actually watch this rehiring process unfold, there's clearly a, a, a reorientation or a realignment towards part-time, which is not surprising given what businesses are facing um, and the uncertainty of you know just how strong their sales might be. Right. You talked about how, okay, a little bit of a slowdown from all that reopening in June. Is this then a, a good plateau? Like if we keep adding jobs at this number, is that a good thing? Wow, if we could keep adding this number, that would be a very good thing. Very, very good thing. So my, my kind of general framework is at, at the worst, we were down about 400,000 jobs. And then we gained uh, a, more than a couple hundred thousand. So right now we're down, and I'm going to say only and put that in air quotes, uh, 165,000 jobs, yeah. obviously a huge number. But when we started off 400,000, you know, a few months back, it's not that bad. So to your question of, you know, where are we? And is this is not not too bad of a trajectory? It, it actually is pretty good. Earlier on, I was thinking if we got to the end of the year down only 200,000 jobs, that wouldn't be a bad outcome. And we're, we're ahead of that pace. So, I, I do think we're going to see, as the rest of the year unfolds, a slowdown. We're not going to see another 70,000. We're probably not going to see another 50,000. But we'll see small positive gains and maybe towards the end of the year, some job losses due to global economic weakness. Right. Is, it, is the key here then, Ken, converting these part-time jobs to full-time? Absolutely. Yes. And that will, particularly if people have been recalled, if they were once employed as full-time, but they've been recalled, you know, on a three-quarter or half-time basis while businesses get back up on their feet and, and operating. Again, I, I do think that process, you will see uh, a, a conversion back to full-time because, you know, and a realignment towards the way the world was. But having said that, we are going to come out the other side of this uh, a few years from now with a, a very different looking labor market. And one of those might be uh, a, reorient, a realignment towards yeah. more part-time work. That might very well be the case. I feel like September is going to be the crucial month here, Ken, right? Because we do have yeah. that expectation of back to school and then we'll really see how many people go back to work. I, I think yeah, I think you're spot on. Uh, September is crucial. The other thing that happens in September is the uh, the benefit, the CERB, uh, winds up right. and and so there's you know the labor market dynamics are very difficult to make sense of right now because there's a lot of distortions and one of those obviously is people are fearful of going back to work in some instances they're asking their employers to keep their hours scaled back so that they can qualify for the CERB uh, they may not have daycare options and whatnot so there's all these different moving bits and pieces and I think you're spot on with the uh, school question uh, parents obviously need kids to go back to school to be able to work. I, I honestly don't know how parents have been juggling it yeah. during these closed down times. I really don't. So then I guess that'll give through the fall, then we'll get a better idea as businesses do adjust. Do you think we'll see some, maybe even go a little bit backwards? Like well, if businesses can't make it without the government help, then we're really going to find out. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I actually do. I think when we get into the fall and then into the final quarter of this year, 
we will see some more permanent. At, right now, layoffs have been temporary, and the government has extended some temporary layoff provisions to accommodate businesses and whatnot. But it, but that does come to an end. You can't keep employees laid off indefinitely. So the, we will see some shifts to permanent layoffs. And I do worry about, as I mentioned, the, the global economic backdrop. It, it is slowing down the the, the world is in recession, and that always impacts yeah. BC because we're a small exporter. We depend on selling our products and services overseas, and so that does drag us down. And so, again, to your question, we, we could very well see some job losses or very weak job gains in, in the latter parts of this year. All right, Ken, thanks so much for breaking this down with us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. The United States has said that they are going to be placing tariffs on Canadian aluminum. In fact, the U.S. president yesterday took direct aim at the Canadian aluminum industry while speaking in Ohio yesterday, uh, claiming that Canada had continued to dump aluminum, therefore they were reinstating these tariffs. Of course, that is not sitting well on this side of the border. We know that Deputy Prime Minister Krista Freeland has been making some announcements about that this morning. So let's find out what happened. Joining us now is Mike LeCouture, our Global National Parliamentary Correspondent. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you doing? Good, thank you. So what did the government announce? Well, reciprocal um, tariffs to the tune of $3.6 billion Canadian, um, but not right away. So she says it will be swift, uh, calling that these tariffs that are being imposed by the by the U.S. Um, unnecessary, unwarranted, and entirely, entirely unacceptable, but says that the Prime Minister has launched some consultation for 30 days. What they want to do is have a list that they'll consult Canadians and Canadian businesses on items that contain aluminum, it would seem, and basically come up with this list where they, what they think that would best target the U.S. Um, and making sure that it is reciprocal. Now, we remember this. This is 2018 all over again. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, so why can't we do like we did in 2018, I think, is, the, is the, the right question that a lot of people remember back. And we remember that other list, right? It was like licorice, orange juice, Kentucky mm-hmm. bourbon, playing cards, sleeping bags, these random things that were not so random when you look at them because they were made in Republican states. And the idea there was put pressure on Republicans to put pressure on their Republican president to try and get them removed. Can't do that now because that was negotiated away in the new USMCA, CUMSA, NAFTA, new NAFTA, whatever you want to call it. You know, a rose by any other name is still the trade deal. Anyways, Mm -hmm. so we can't do that. We can only respond in sector by sector um, reciprocal tariffs. Therefore, it has to be something with aluminum. From what we're understanding in early days here, it will be washing machines. Uh, will you know? Washing machines are on that list. It's, so, um, also hearing of you know exercise equipment, um, uh, golf clubs, those types of things that we will now impose a ten percent tariff on until we get to that magic three point six billion dollar right. uh, number. And that seems like it's the response. Part of the response is also by Freeland. Um, holding out hope that it won't happen because this is actually only going to come into effect on August 16th. Uh, so she says she hopes for the best but prepares for the worst when it comes to this type of thing with the U.S. Um, and she will continue to have conversations with the person that she helped negotiate uh, the new NAFTA with, um, U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer. She said she spoke to him a couple of times yesterday. We'll continue to try and speak with him and try and have them, you know, come off this ledge. Uh, but 
when you consider that the pri the president, uh, you know, Donald Trump, announces this uh, very proudly yesterday, mid-afternoon, it'll be hard to get him to uh, to walk this one back, especially when you consider he's 88 days away from a presidential election and he needs uh, to, you know, rattle the saber a little bit and tell yeah. the, the American public that he's working for them. Mike, I thought all this was, isn't this what the new NAFTA was supposed to take care of? Like, these are the problems that we were having before the trade deal. Yeah, and, and that's what we thought was going to be put to bed. Uh, you know, Christian Freeland was still speaking to, to media as I uh, as I joined you here, uh, and I haven't sort of heard that question asked yet. I remember when this was rumored early on uh, in the summer, and we spoke to a conservative about it who said, look, this is one of the problems of the new NAFTA, is that we negotiated that kind of power away to have a broad-based approach in reciprocal tariffs. If we could have gone back to, again, orange juice, um, you know, sleeping yeah. bags, playing cards, and that kind of a thing, then it really gets their attention. But because we can only go tit for tat, aluminum for aluminum, uh, it's a little more difficult. Um, and yes, it's it's possibly more fair because you're hitting them back. But when you consider the, the amount of exports that we send to them and what they send to us, it, you know, it that's why I think the Canadian government is now looking for a list of products that contain aluminum uh, as opposed to, you know, the raw aluminum that we send over that we can tax back. Right. So I guess, is it also that 30 days of public consultation? Does that buy them a little bit of time, I guess, to one, hope that this doesn't happen or maybe the political winds will change somehow? Yeah, I mean, that's what this government does. They consult, right? Um, and, and I'm not criticizing them for that, but I think it's it's also a good thing to take a step back uh, because the last thing you want to do is really amp up the volume uh, and really provoke, especially not with this president. Uh, what we've seen from President Trump is that, yes, he respects people who stand up, but at the same time, um, you can't get into a, um, a saber-rattling right. battle with this guy because we know that the U.S. buys a lot of Canadian goods, um, and they're our biggest trading partner. The last thing that Canada wants to do is really um, sort of put our foot in our mouth or right. try and go too hard and then have him say, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to splash the pot here, and I'm really going to do some damage, especially in a time of COVID-19. And that's mm -hmm. what Deputy Prime Minister Freeland said. This is not going to help either economy recover. It's actually going to do the inverse. All right, Mike, thanks so much for the update. Thanks for having me. Mike LeCouture, our global national parliamentary correspondent, talking about the ways in which Canada aims to uh, fight back against these aluminum tariffs that the United States says they're going to be imposing on Canadian aluminum products. So more to come on that.